You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Accounted For. This is a podcast that shares and inspires unconventional career journeys. Thanks once again for tuning in and please help the podcast grow by telling your friends all about it, leaving a nice review and all that jazz. Sign up to my newsletter at omdventures.com, learn more about everything I do and support the community. And yeah, what better thing to do than during this uh, COVID situation than to listen to more fascinating career journeys to inspire you for when the shutdown ends, right? That's what you want to be ready for. This is the opportunity you were waiting for. Okay, so without further ado, today's conversation is with Matt Cohen. He is the founder and managing partner of Ripple Ventures. Ripple Ventures is a Toronto-based early-stage venture capital fund that works alongside startups through the good and the bad every day. This is really fitting with their motto of being operators first, per Matt's own background as an operator-turned-investor. Though before being an an operator, Matt started his career in finance as an equity trader for RBC, completing tours on both Wall Street and Bay Street. While working in capital markets, he made a seed investment in a tech company called Turnstile Solutions, where he started cutting his operator's teeth on the company's journey to getting eventually acquired by Yelp. We go through the various pivots in Matt's career journey from capital markets to tech operations, angel investing, and to his current role of running a venture capital fund. As always, it was never a pre-planned linear journey for Matt, and we dig through every part of it as much as we can. This was a very fun conversation, and for someone personally who would like to run his own investment fund one day, this was a very uh, selfish (laughs) request on my end, but I do my best to try to learn as much as I can from Matt's fascinating journey. And I hope this will be a fun episode that inspires you on your own journey as well. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Matt Cohen. Hey Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Matt here is the founder and managing partner of Ripple Ventures. And so Matt, to start us off with, would you care? To, would you mind uh, describing Ripple Ventures to myself and my audience? Absolutely, for sure. Thanks again. Um, yeah, so Ripple Ventures is a fund I started in early 2018. Um, it's an early stage fund, so we invest in pre-seed and seed stage companies, predominantly in the uh, northeast of Canada and the U.S. Um, so we invest in Toronto, surrounding areas, uh, Boston and New York. We uh, are a B2B and enterprise SaaS-focused fund. Um, so we don't invest in consumer software companies, hardware companies, blockchain, uh, or cannabis. We're mostly focused on enterprise and B2B SaaS. Um, we are typically uh, investing half a million to a million dollars per investment. Um, and we also run our own incubator space in downtown Toronto, uh, a space that we call The Tank, which is about 5,000 square feet. We have about 50 desks and we house about three to four companies at any given time. And it's a way for us to work alongside of our portfolio companies where we can provide hands-on support uh, from our team and our group of entrepreneurs and residents and advisors to help our companies uh, accelerate their growth to the next level. Gotcha. Awesome. Thanks for the overview. And I'm curious on 
what what made you uh, focus on the B2B SaaS enterprise space? And you also pointed out how you don't invest in consumer retail and cannabis. Although I know that, you know, you previously were a private investor in Tokyo Smoke. So I'm curious, like, what made you want to focus on the B2B enterprise space? So it's kind of like, you know, invest in what you know, um, mm. and not to, to go too far off thesis. Um, those investments uh, I made in Tokyo Smoke, and I still have cannabis investments in companies like Superette, um, based out of Ottawa and now opening in Toronto. So in my personal investments, I still do make those investments in you know, cannabis and blockchain and consumer stuff. But in the fund, um, we have a very clear thesis um, for our LPs to invest in B2B and enterprise SaaS companies. And um, the reason why is because my background, um, uh, quickly, just to give you a sense of it, I, I came from capital markets. I worked on Wall Street during the last crisis. Um, you know, I was there during 2007, 8, 9, all the way to 12. Um, I had helped start a tech company in early 2012 called Turnstile Solutions. Um, and then I had also worked uh, for an enterprise SaaS company in Toronto and Boston. Um, so I have a background in selling enterprise SaaS. My partner, Michael Garb, he also ran a B2B SaaS company in the data hosting and networking solution, solutions and ISP space. Uh, had a team of about 100 people. So he is very familiar with enterprise customers and partnerships and negotiations. And so we really came together based on our previous experiences. And so that's why we decided to focus on that area. Got it. And before we go deeper into, I guess, the expertise of Ripple Ventures and what it's actually like to run a venture fund, I'd like to touch base on the previous part of your career that you graciously kind of provided an overview on. Um, maybe if we, even if we dig back a little further, I understand that you studied business at Dalhousie University and so were you, did you grow up from the East coast or are you from uh, the Toronto side? Yeah. So um, no, I, I definitely did not grow up on the East coast, even though sometimes I wish I had, um, <laughs> I I'm born and raised in Toronto, Canada. Um, I had uh, grown up where, um, you know, there was the last year of grade 13 in Ontario. So it was the double cohort year. So it was a time when there was a lot of pressure on uh, grade 12 and 13 students to get into universities uh, all at the same time when there were limited spots. So I actually had applied to uh, a bunch of Ontario schools with a pretty high average and they just were overcrowded in the business programs. So I chose to go to Dalhousie uh, because I heard they had a great business school and they also had a co-op placement program for their uh, commerce degree. So that's why I went out there and that's where I actually got introduced to capital markets and investment banking and uh, finance and sales and trading. So I did three co-op terms at RBC in Toronto during my time at Dalhousie. And then after working on the trading desk in Toronto for a couple of years, I moved down to New York. I worked on the merger, urban adventure and hedge fund trading team uh, during the crisis. And so um, that's sort of where I got a lot of exposure to um, public stocks, investing, hedge funds, um, mergers and acquisitions, uh, and then obviously living through the last crisis in the global financial crisis, got to see the ups and downs of, of risk taking and, and running capital investments for you know uh, the bank and, and so on. So uh, I did that, came back to Toronto uh, in 2012 while still at the bank um, and helped start a tech company on the side. And that company, as I mentioned, was called Turnstile Solutions, wrote the first check to get the business going. 
Uh, and then eventually that business was acquired by Yelp in 2017. Um, and, and so kind of never looked back, I guess. Yeah. And we, we I want to kind of dig into the, even your kind of equity trading uh, parallel, just because I'm, when I, when I started out in my career as an accountant, I think I mentioned prior to our recording, well, my client focus was actually investment banks. So I always audited uh, capital markets clients and I would always be next to the trading floor. And one of the reasons I left accounting was because I wanted to be a prop trader. Um, it's just, I was trying to find a career that was like powerlifting where it was kind of like a sport, very psychological and about trading was one. And so for someone that was actually in, you know, on the trading floor and actually went through like the whole kind of 08 crisis and everything, what, what kind of per- permitted, permitted you to kind of leave that world and go trickle into like the startup space? Because I'm my understanding is that you you were at RBC for about five and a half years after graduating, and then you're also still at the sales and trading team at National Bank um, for about another two and a half years before you kind of transitioned into I think joining Turnstile. Yeah, I mean, so I spent about a decade on Wall Street and Bay Street working yeah. on the sales and trading team. Um, and it's kind of funny because as we're recording this podcast, it's, uh, I guess, Thursday, March 26th, and we are currently still in the crisis uh, <laughs> known as Corona. Yes. And uh, my trader personality, which has long been sort of put aside, has come back out while I'm stuck at home. And I've been trading the uh, volatility of the mar- markets and the options market mm-hmm. a lot um, based on my last you know, career. Uh, and so it is a very funny time to be having this conversation, I guess. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I mean, you know, I, I, I learned a lot. I mean, my, uh, my whole like risk taking approach, my, my thought process around separating emotion from making investments, uh, all came from my time uh, on the trading desk. So you develop a very thick skin, you try to remove emotion from everyday decision making, and you try to extrapolate information from very obscure sources in order to get a very uh, clear and concise view on the options being presented in front of you. So you learn about opportunity costs, you learn about time analysis and sort of, you know, the, all the different Greeks when you're trading options and stuff and, and obviously hedging and, and taking off, taking money off the table to lock in a profit, even though you believe that the maximum potential is much higher um, and also managing downside risk. So a lot of that has helped me in my career uh, as a venture capital investor Um but I, I think that uh, the reason why I switched over, uh, I guess, to the early stage side of investing is because as a public market investor, um, you have basically zero control over the outcomes of your investments. You have uh, no connection to the company pretty much whatsoever. You don't get to call the management team. You don't get to sit on the sidelines uh, during board meetings and, and hear everything that goes on behind closed doors. You really just are relying on public information and market sentiment in order to prove out your uh, investment thesis. And so I didn't think that uh, those skill sets were the best skill sets to to have when you wanted to become a a private investor. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to understand how companies were formed before they became public. So you think about companies that are public, you know, they were created 20, 30 years before they even became public. Um, and so there's a whole life of existence as a private company, especially nowadays, where more and more companies are staying private longer, um, that people just don't get to see. And so I wanted to understand 
how companies became public. And I thought if I went to the earliest of stages when a company got started uh, and had a very hands-on approach to getting that company to the next level, I felt that I could learn the most um, versus just being a public investor. So that's what drew me to, uh, to being an early stage investor because uh, I really want to understand what happened to companies before they became public. Gotcha. And how did you come about the opportunity uh, to invest in Turnstile Solutions? My understanding is that you were one of like the early Czech investors for Turnstile and you did it while you were working at RBC, like still in the public equity markets. Yeah. So, I mean, Turnstile was not Turnstile even before uh, I wrote the first check. It was, uh, it was just an idea uh, with a couple of friends that we were toying around with, you know, originally it was trying to um, help fans connect with bands. Um, I just moved back from New York. And so I was kind of into like the, the music team there and thought it was interesting that fans never really got to connect with the bands that they were in love with. And so we had this idea to try to help connect fans with their bands. It was called Bandwagon Tags or Fan Garden. Those were the two names we came up with. And then we quickly realized that the best way to track fans coming into concert venues to allow them to connect with the bands was through Wi-Fi. And we thought, oh, wow, we can use Wi-Fi to connect with people's cell phone devices through their MAC addresses um, to connect them with the bands that they were coming to see in the different music venues. And then we quickly realized that Wi-Fi was not just limited to the music venue industries, but it was also going to be ubiquitous across all the different retail uh, chains and franchises and hotels and cafes and bars and restaurants and so on. So the idea for Turnstile came out of uh, an earlier idea when it was really related to the music industry. So I wrote the first check to even get the company started and have the two uh, founders uh, quit their jobs and spend full time on the business. And that was in September of 2012. And it really was um, the people that drew me to the uh, idea of writing the first check. It was actually a significant amount of money for me at the time. Um, and, you know, I'm obviously glad I, I wrote the check, but at that time, I really thought that it was a way for me to get um, pretty much an MBA um, without having to go to school for it um, and learning about how to start a business from scratch um, when um, the opportunity was in front of me. So I wanted to have that experience. And if I lost the money, it wouldn't have, you know, drastically changed my life but uh, the experience would potentially. And so I, I decided to take that risk and I'm glad I did. Wow. And you did this while you were working full-time too, I think, because even after writing yeah. the check at RBC, you, you were still working as a director of equity sales and trading at National Bank, which is you know not a you know easy nine to five job, but you're still also working with the turnstile team while you were doing all this before you even went full-time into it? Yeah. So I, I guess I was like, you know, moonlighting with the company. I was helping them <laughs> set up, you know, legal and business structure and sales and helping them fundraise with like a bunch of angels and families and friends and stuff. So the first check was in September, 2012. We did probably raise another round until 2014. And that was again, a very small round. I mean, the company didn't even raise much money in the grand scheme of things from any VCs. And I mean, we can get into that after, but that whole experience of having to like cobble together, $25,000, $50,000 checks from a handful of angels, like I'm talking like 20, 30 angels, um, really drew me towards uh, being an institutional investor at the early stage because I, uh, I felt that the ecosystem really lacked it uh, mm. during my time when I was helping out the Turnstile team. So, but yeah, that's sort of what it was like, moonlighting. <laughs> and from the, but 
from moonlighting, what was the decision like to actually go full time into it? Because it's one thing to be an investor that helps out, but when you actually decide, okay, I'm going to quit my full time job and actually go join this company that I invested in, what was that decision yeah. process like? So, I mean, the decision was actually made for me. Um, I left National Bank. Um, they let me go, and it was basically the best decision that ever happened to me. Mm. Um, so, I uh, I left in the summer of 2015. Uh, was, yeah, I think it was around 2015, and um, I had already, you know, been wor- working with Turnstile for a while, but I didn't end up going working full time um, because, you know, I was already on the board. I had a decent amount of equity in the business, and they already had a team of about 30, 35 people working there. So there wasn't really a need for me to join full time, um, and I ended up going to work for a capital markets software company. Uh, called Street Context, where I was actually using the software at National Bank, and I thought it was a really amazing product. And so I ended up going working there uh, as a director of enterprise sales. So it was actually um, a decision that was made for me, and I'm I'm very glad it was. Wow. And what what was the process like, actually, kind of uh, going through the journey with Turnstile, where you're figuring out how you could add value as an investor? Because my understanding is that even for Ripple Ventures right now, your approach is that you're an operator first and you always want your focus is actually adding value to the entrepreneurs aside from just the capital piece. And I read that your experience at Turnstile Solutions was a very big kind of part of realizing how you could help the entrepreneurs. And I'm curious, how did that evolve from, you know, thinking about, like you said, like setting up the legal side to actually getting more, mm-hmm. I guess, deeper in? Yeah, I think it's just sort of like the human connection element Um you know, I didn't really think that um, the, the you know, investor should be um, kept at an arm's length from the operators of a business, especially at the early stage, because you need all the help and support you can get. And so, you know, my network could benefit um, potentially from this, you know, investment. And therefore, I was, you know, constantly making connections and bringing investors to the group. Um, there was people I knew in the restaurant industry and in the sales space that we can you know, help bring customers. It's sort of the same thing that, you know, venture funds do every day where they try to basically take their network and try to apply it to the businesses that they're invested in. My wife likes to describe my job sometimes to people as an old school phone operator where someone <laughs> calls into a line and then you take the line out and you plug it into another hole and you connect the two people and there's a switchboard operator in between. So she basically says I'm a professional switchboard operator. Um, and that's really what it, it was like at the early days with Turnstile, just trying to, you know, help them think about um, different ways to, uh, you know, evolve the business, negotiate um, partnerships, customers, structure. I mean, everything that goes into a business you can think of, but just be a sounding board for them. I mean, most people, uh, as early stage investors can also describe themselves as a therapist, to be honest, um, because you're a sounding board for these, you know, often first time founders who have never been in a lot of these situations before. And so you just try to um, allow them to explain their thoughts and be a voice of reason when they have maybe no one else to turn to. Um, mm-hmm. So that's sort of how it started. And how do you, how did you go about building the trust with the entrepreneurs? Because I- when I, from my journey of speaking to other entrepreneurs, there's definitely also, I think, that fear factor for entrepreneurs to like open up to their investors and show kind of vulnerability and saying like, yeah, I don't know what's going on or actually like trying to get mm-hmm. help. And I think that can be a very yeah. difficult thing for uh, entrepreneurs to open up to investors about. But how, how did you go about actually like, earning the trust and becoming yeah. that kind of confidant? Uh, 
Yeah, it's a good question. I think like, you know, first off, when we invest now, and even when I invest in the past, um, there's a ton of back and forth with um, the operators uh, before even the first check is written, where you start to build a rapport and relationship, you try to understand, you know, where they came from, what their views are of, you know, the world, people, you try to build that human connection element right away. Um, and then the money part, um, I think should enhance the relationship because it al aligns the interest with both, you know, the founder and the investor. Um, some people think there's a line that divides investors and, and founders and operators. I don't. Um, I believe once that check has been written, I go from sitting across the table to sitting on the same side of the table as that in, uh, founder to try to go for to bat for them. Now, obviously, when things are going well, you know, that relationship is a lot easier to hold in place. It's when things go bad um, that you get to see who your true partners are um, and whether or not they're going to go to bat for you. So what, you know, what I try to explain and my partner and our team do is we say that we're with investors or we're investors through the good and the bad. And right now, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff happening um, with companies and startups. And so this is not the time for, for investors to, you know, turn into loan sharks to their founders who they were, you know, only a couple months ago, best friends with, but to be real true partners. Um, because, you know, those things, um, those things last much longer um, in our opinion. So it really starts with just building that human connection with the founders and then being with them through the good and the bad and being honest, but being you know respectful of the fact that like you're kind of are in this together. Mm -hmm. And how, how long does uh typical kind of process take if there even is a typical process for you from the time you first meet the founders to eventually when you get to the point of deciding that you want to invest in that team you mean so like how, how quickly do we typically choose to invest at ripple um i guess it's kind of i guess it's more of a two-part question where because i know you've done a lot of private investing prior to ripple so i'm curious how long do mm. you kind of go about building the relationship like you said when you first meet the founder and get constantly getting to know them and how long that kind of process generally is for you yeah sure i mean um uh you know with my own personal capital um i can you know make a decision on whether or not i want to support someone you know pretty quickly and i've gotten burned in the past you know by just trusting my gut uh, but i've i've never forgotten those experiences and the things that i thought were you know important or character traits that i thought should matter they ended up not really mattering much at all, or I judged them wrong. And so, um, you know, integrity is a very big thing I look for uh, on the personal side. On the fun side, because we have such a, uh, a strict due diligence process, whether it's market analysis, business analysis, people analysis, technology analysis, there's a lot of things that we do for our due diligence process at Ripple, uh, which could take, you know, from first meeting to, to check in the bank, um, eight to 12 weeks sometimes maybe, um, even though we can move quite quickly. Um, but on the personal side, I'd say you probably need to have at least three meetings for me to feel like I, I can trust this person. And I don't really do private investing much anymore. Everything is invested in the fund. Mm -hmm. And the only private investments I would do are people I've had relationships with for a long time. Got it. And from transitioning from being a private investor to starting a fund, what what made you want to go on that journey where, you know, it, being a founder of a fund, you're, you're, you're becoming an entrepreneur yourself as well. And what made you want to transition into that role from just instead of just continuing to be an angel investor and 
making all these uh, personal checks? Yeah. So, I mean, I was, um, I was living in Boston at the time and I was spending a lot of time out in Cambridge and hanging around like Harvard and MIT and all the different like incubators out there. And I just got to see a ton of great early stage companies that were um, getting started and, and working on some really cool problems um, that I wanted to be a part of. And so I wrote like probably a dozen angel investment checks, obviously having the sale of turnstile help from like a liquidity point of view. But I saw that there was a ton of great, um, you know, opportunities for me to invest in and work alongside a lot of companies in Toronto and Boston, New York, where I was, you know, familiar with. And so it actually came about from some family offices back in Toronto that mm. asked me if I would be interested in launching a fund. Um, and, you know, to be honest, the, the CEO of, of, of Turnstile, uh, Devin Wright, was a big component of pushing me to go launch the fund. You know, it was kind of like giving back to me almost that like the way that I gave to him, he was the one who said, you know, you should really start a fund. I think you're really good at this. And obviously, you know, the success with Turnstile and some of the other investments, I think can, you know, prove to people. So it kind of came around a bit organically. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really set out to raise a fund with other investors. It just sort of happened through conversations and networking. And so uh, we launched the first fund in, in um, September, 2018. Um, you know, myself and my partner, Michael, who was an angel investor in Turnstile early. So that's how we actually met each other, uh, had just exited his business to a U.S. public company. And so um, we ended up representing a third of the capital in our first fund. So we put a lot of our own net worth into the fund to prove to investors that we were, you know, putting our money where our mouth was. And so... Um, that's sort of how it all came together. And then we had a handful of family and friends and family offices support us along the way. Okay, got it. Wow. And on that journey though of raising the fund, did you did you have obstacles in regards to like getting people to believe in the story of um, what you wanted to make Ripple Ventures into? Uh, like, okay. Yeah, I mean, of course. And if I didn't, <laughs> I would have probably had a billion dollar fund. Um, yeah, of course. I mean, I think everyone is sort of like, who are you? How are you? going to be able to do this you know it's you're basically betting on a person i mean the whole thing about raising a fund is you're asking people to give you a blind pool of capital to invest in something in the future whereas you know when you're investing in public markets you know what you're buying when you're investing in individual companies you know what you're buying when you invest in real estate you know what you're buying you can physically touch the asset but in private equity and venture capital um you're basically trusting the person and their vision that they can do what they say they're going to do before they actually do it. And that's, that's a tough thing for people to wrap their heads around sometimes. So absolutely there was, you know, pushback from, from everyone. Mm -hmm. you know, I would be, I would just be as, uh, you know, uh, skeptical uh, as you know people are when they meet me for the first time, I'm sure. <laughs> and so how did you go about overcoming that obstacle as, you know, like, from your experience, yeah, you've, you've worked as an operator for two different uh, startup companies. One has like ex exited successfully and you've been, mm -hmm. you know, investing in the public equity markets before. And so yeah. there can be a, a, a rational argument made that, yeah, like, you know, you, you had some experience there, but I guess like other sides, some people could say, oh, like, but have you ever been an entrepreneur of a venture-backed company before? And I'm mm -hmm. curious, like how you kind of overcame those obstacles. 
Yeah, I think like there's no secret sauce to it. I think it's like a, a relationship building exercise. But I think showing my, you know, my personal track record as an angel helped a lot. I think my uh, obviously willingness to put in a lot of capital along with my partner into the fund also helped a lot. Um, I think the fact that, you know, there were already two investments made in the fund um, before investors capital was also put in also helped a lot. So they, there was some, uh, there were some investments in the fund that they could already see uh, in terms of like the, the, uh, the companies they were going to be owning. So there was a, you know, there was a, a couple of things that we did that helped investors believe in what we were saying uh, could be a reality. Got it. And after you started the fund, did did you find find like uh, did you face similar obstacles when you're trying to actually invest in entrepreneurs, where they would start kind of wondering like if you were the right investor or not, and what kind of obstacles did you face on that front? Yeah, I mean, we're still facing obstacles like that <laughs> every day. I think I don't think those uh, go away. I think, um, yeah, I mean, coming coming out as a first fund with um, you know, limited track record, limited sort of reputation uh, always presents us challenges. But I think we, you know, our personal backgrounds uh, gave us credibility. I think um, you know, the advisors that we surrounded ourselves with, the investors that we have in the fund helped us you know, you know, build credibility. And then just sort of the um, maybe fake it till you make it. I don't know. I think like you kind of have to just have a little bit of uh, hope and pray that like the people will believe what you're saying. And so what we, what we try to do is have them talk to other people in mm. their network about us. And I think that's the best sort of thing. You know, we have a lot of founders who um, are looking to work with us or we're looking to work with them. And we tell them to go speak with um, our existing founders um, to see what they say about working with us. Uh, because that's the best sort of way of understanding of if what we're saying is true. We'll say everything to make you feel like we're the best investor to work with. But why don't you just speak to our founders who have worked with us before and see what their experience was like? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you, you you probably get that feedback from what the founders are saying. And so I'm curious, what what kind of investor are you to founders? Well, well, I mean, if, you to, you. if you go to our website, we have quotes from all of our founders. We don't force them to write them. They, they write them themselves and we post them on the website so you can go see them right now but um i think a lot of the the feedback we get from founders is you know we're there with them for the good and the bad we act as an extension of their management team we put in extra work to alleviate some of the stresses that our founders typically um would be going through on their own um we take the lead when nobody else does um we're not afraid to roll up our sleeves um, and, and just stuff like that. I think, um, you know, our operator first approach, um, is really about doing things that are just not typical for investors sometimes, um, that, and founders appreciate that. And it, it even goes beyond that just in terms of like companies we don't even invest in. I mean, there's a handful of companies that we don't invest in that we're still helping today and putting together some introductions. Uh, help them prepare their decks. Uh, even though they don't fit our investment thesis, we still like the founders and want to build you know, relationships with them because you never know if they'll start a company down the road. So it, it doesn't just stop at the companies we invest in, but it goes throughout the, the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so we, we like doing that. 
Yeah, and it seems like that's kind of related to, I think, in, in a past interview, when you were asked about one of your biggest success, it, uh, you talked about how other founders and people in the startup community reference to Ripple Ventures as kind of bringing a breath of fresh air to the current kind of VC community and startup community. And I'm curious, like, can you elaborate on that? Like, what What is the kind of perception of the status quo right now then? Um, I mean, the status quo is always changing, I think, from what venture funds were 20 years ago to what they are now, especially as more and more uh, ex-founders launch their own funds. Mm. You know, they know what it's like to be a founder. And so they're way more empathetic and compassionate towards the problems they're facing. Um, and I think that's the sort of approach that we take as well. I think a lot of founders, you know, especially first-time founders, they're like scared shitless of boards. Like having a board meeting is like the scariest thing in the world. Um, and we try to work with them and prepare them for like what a board meeting is actually like before they go into the line of fire. And so those are things that we, you know, we, we work with founders on. We'll help them prepare uh, for, for meetings, for interviews, for press. Um, we, we really try to act as like a sounding board for things that you just maybe don't want to talk to your investors about because you just think it's something they don't care about or you don't want to like cross the line between a, a friend and an investor. Um, we blur that line all the time. And um, I think it's in the long run uh, helpful for us with the, the founders that we end up working with. Mm. And on, on the kind of flip side, I think uh, you noted previously that one of the biggest failures slash learnings you've had was uh, on trusting other people's research and due diligence. And you mentioned how right now at Ripple Ventures, you have a very kind of rigorous uh, due diligence process. But I'm curious, would you mind sharing the kind of what experience led to that kind of learning where you ended up trusting other people's research and due diligence? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we do it all the time, right? Like people are uh, designed to do the least amount of work for the most amount of gain. And I think that uh, I think it was like Warren Buffett that had a saying, it's like, if you have to get in line to make an investment, you got to get the heck out of the line um, <laughs> because it's not good to be um, relying on other people's thoughts when making decisions, you know, with your time and money. And I think we, we, we want to make sure that everything um, that we're doing with our investors capital, uh, we're doing it for reasons that we have, uh, you know, stress test. And, and analyzed. Um, so in the past, in my own personal investments, you know, I made investments based off of whether it was public investing or private investing on what I heard from anecdotal, you know, conversations with other people. And I just, uh, I just had too many mistakes from that to, to say enough's enough, you know, you got to do your own research. Um, because if you're not willing to put the time into researching it, how are you going to spend uh, the time helping this company after it's too late. You know, once you're invested, you're in, you can't get out, especially in private early stage companies. So <laughs> would you rather um, do the work now before you invest, um, which may take, you know, a couple months versus just investing based on somebody else's research and then having to dig yourself out of that investment, you know, for the next several years. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's why. Gotcha. And is, is that one of the reasons why you like to lead the investment rounds when you make an investment? Yeah, I think that's a part of it. I think um, one is we like to move fast and we don't like to be held up by other people's decisions. So we, we like to lead that. Uh, we do like to be hands-on operators and 
in on the board. So that's another reason why. And then, yeah, we, we want to do our own research. We actually do our own research um, with, a, you know, we have like technical research, uh, market research, uh, people, founder research, all that kind of due diligence. And we put it all together. And then we actually put the syndicate of investors together as well that we want to bring in the round and work with us. And we provide them our due diligence. But we do say, hey, if this is our due diligence. You can do what you want with it. You're welcome to do your own. Um, but yeah, that's typically why we like to leave. Got it. And when you actually work with your investment, uh, your portfolio companies, what does that really look like? I'm sure it's definitely like different based on the stage and all the kind of issues. But if you were to kind of piece it as kind of a rhythmic flow of the kind of uh, problems that you're solving, kind of if you looked at it in like a span of like a month long kind of period of where you're actually working with the portfolio company, like how, what does it look like from your, your kind of engagement perspective? Like, do you go really yeah, deep sure. and like work on models? Like for example, yeah, I'd love to kind of get a, if you could paint me a picture, if you will, of what it actually looks like for a investor like yourself who gets involved in like the operations. Sure. I mean, look, we're not, uh, we're not going to build the product. Uh, we're not going to even probably design the product. We are more focused on, the governance and the structure of the company and how they're going to spend the capital. So we don't really ask for revenue projections. We ask for operating budgets when we invest in companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we put a fractional CFO into all the businesses we invest in to help take o- over their payroll, their bookkeeping, their budgeting and forecasting analysis, just so that they don't have to worry about that. Um, we try to put in enterprise sales coaches, helping them with recruiting, customer introductions, uh, performance coaching, things like that. Um, typically, what, after we've closed an investment, we'll like onboard the the founding team into our sort of like template sort of structure for all the different kind of like things they should be building internally, whether it's like sales structure, uh, HR, um, you know, culture, recruiting policies for whether it's like just offering them our Ripple healthcare insurance plan to join or helping them with like preparing the materials for customers and board meetings and things like that. So there's not really a one size fits all. Um, But what we try to do is explain to them like, look, these are um, the goals for the next like quarter, two quarters, a year. Uh, Let's work backwards for how we get there and let's keep, you know, a regular cadence. So usually we'll have like biweekly calls with our founding teams in the first six months. Um, so at least two quarters um, on how things are going and adjust their, you know, metrics and uh, KPIs accordingly. Um, and that's just so that like, we're all on the same page. Um, and then once we see where things are looking for like the year, um, we can, strategize on, okay, do we need to put in more capital? Do we need to accelerate the sales hiring? Or do we need to put more money in product? We really just act as an extension of their management team. Mm. And a lot of these times, a lot of these companies don't have like real management teams. It's usually like one founder who's on the sales side, one founder who's on the technical side, and they need to sort of figure out how to build that management structure um, in a non sort of like, um, over uh you know over contrived way we don't want them to like have all this bureaucracy and red tape they're still a startup they're still a speedboat trying to move very fast Uh, but we just want to act what we describe it as is um you know when you uh, at the bowling alley and there's those 
bumpers that come up the sides <laughs> of the bowling lane. Yeah, yeah. We're we're not throwing the bowling ball. We're not hitting the pins. We just act as those bumpers on the side of them, so you don't end up in the gutters. Right. No, that's a that's a wonderful analogy, and I'm sure there's also more than just one person doing like the bumper. Like if a startup has multiple investors. I can imagine that other investors would like to get involved. And how do how do you uh, kind of manage that so that the entrepreneurs themselves don't get too boggled down with too much advice, or people want to help them too much? Like, how does that balance work out? So typically, we are like one of the first institutional investors in a round. Mm. So there really aren't too many other VC funds all the time in our deal. And if there are, it's ones that we've worked with or know. Mm. So. We don't seem to have that conflict. Um, if there was another round of financing, let's say there's like a, after a pre-seed round, there's a seed or if there's a series A, we slowly kind of pull ourselves out of the process um, when it's, um, you know, another round of investment comes in. And so they kind of take a little bit more of the work off of our load if, uh, if the company has sort of done the next round of financing. So the work that we do it's not like for five years, it's for, you know, six to 12 months sometimes. So we are very, um, very hands-on for kind of a short period of time to set them up for success and then kind of hand it off to the next round of investors. But at the times that we are invested with other funds, we work really well with them. Sometimes we bring in other funds just because they're, you know, better at product design or they're better at, um, um, you know, something that we aren't experts in because we're enterprise sales um, people for the most part. So we help a lot on the sales side, the fundraising side, uh, management team structure, things like that. So we can't do everything. Right. And as a founder and managing partner of a fund, um, how, how does your kind of time slip work? So we talked about the op- operation side, we're actually working with the portfolio companies, but I'm curious like, if you were to kind of bucket your, t- your time allocation um, into like, various activities, how would that kind of look if, for example, one bucket was working with portfolio companies, like what percentage of your time do you find you end up spending to that bucket and what do the other buckets look like? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm very lucky um, that, you know, we have a very small um, team. Uh, I mean, we're a small fund, but we have a pretty small team that does a lot with what we have at our disposal. Um, you know, my two associates, Josh and Dom are fantastic. They uh, deal with a lot of the, you know, initial calls with companies and founders and initial due diligence reports and things like that. Um, we, you know, we have, uh, our fellowship program, which is where like a lot of students work with our funds and, and help sort of understand the VC ecosystem that we, you know, built a lot of processes around. And then we have an internal chat with like all of our companies. So we're constantly in contact with all of our companies and their employees. Um, but I'm also very fortunate to have a partner who has a tremendous amount of operating experience. My partner, Michael, as I mentioned, you know, he's run large sales teams, large companies, he's done acquisitions, he's done um, debt financing, enterprise partnership negotiations, um, he's been on boards. So he, he does a lot of the operating stuff with our companies. He'll be on a lot of the boards. Um, you know, we split boards, but he's on a lot of the boards. He's in a lot of M&A uh, conversations. He works with a lot of uh, partnership teams. Um, so he's really involved in that. I tend to spend more time on dealing with the management of the funds, so the finances, uh, the legals, uh, you know, financing for, for new companies or existing companies, managing relationships with our LPs, investors, and meeting new investors, and then also building a very broad network with other VC funds 
in the ecosystem who we would want to potentially work with us down the road. So I spend a lot of time talking with VC funds around the globe who are potentially interested in investing in our companies at the next round. Okay. And another part of your VC fund, um, you, you touched upon the fellowship program that you have. And I think that's the program that you bring in students and undergrad and grad programs to like work with you. And I think you also mentioned about the tank, which is the incubator that you have for your portfolio companies. I'm curious about the idea of like starting the tank where you already had a venture capital fund. What prompted you to start an incubator um, on the side? And what was that process like? I'm sure it's definitely different from launching a venture fund. Yeah, I mean, so we never really set out to be, um, I guess, a landlord, um, <laughs> you know, or run like a, a WeWork. Um, but it sort of came together because we had already made investments in a, a couple of companies. And one of our uh, earliest companies, Tread, was growing pretty fast. And the CEO, Noah, who, you know, is a good friend of mine, he said, look, you know, we would be interested in, in working closely with you in a shared office space. You know, how do you feel about sort of working in an office with us? And we said, well, that's a good idea. <laughs> um, but if you're asking us, there's probably other companies that are in a similar situation. Um, and so my partner, Michael, and I, and, you know, we were talking about it and we said, look, like, we say we're our operators first. We say we're hands-on investors. What's a better way to be a hands-on investor uh, than by working with our companies in the physical same office and, and having our, our door always open for them to come and talk to us and, and stuff. And so that's sort of how it started. And then we found this amazing space at Spadina and Adelaide in downtown Toronto in the heart of the tech ecosystem. Um, where we've got like, you know, call booths, we have a, a kitchen, we've got uh, private call meeting rooms and, and boardrooms and, and all the stuff you would think of to be uh, used in a, in a shared office uh, in a very open concept style place. So we decided to take the place um, in October 2018. And so far we've had six companies in there, um, which has been amazing. And companies sort of start at, you know, three, four, five employees and grow to 20 employees and then they you know raise their series a and and go move on to a bigger space down the street and so a lot of our companies that were started or came into the tank after we invested they still come back there every every month you know mm. they come in host meetings they come in for free snacks um <laughs> they come in to <clears throat> and do interviews and stuff like that so it's it's an amazing space for us to stay connected with our companies whether they're in there or they grow out of it and still come back to it so uh it's, it was a great decision i'm very happy we did it and in you know you, you mentioned how you launched uh, ripple ventures back in 2018 and so it's been you know about two years since you've been a venture capital investor and running your own fund and i'm curious like what what were the things that kind of surprised you um being a you know running your own fund compared to like when you were a private investor because I, I i can imagine that when you're an angel investor you'll start thinking, you know, you, you've dealt with venture capitalists before. And so you might think, oh, yeah, like I can imagine the role to be like this. I can imagine running a fund to be like X, Y, Z. But I'm sure there's a lot of surprises that you didn't anticipate. And so I'm curious what the, what those were. It's mm, a good question. I mean, there's always surprises, I guess, you know, well, obviously right now, dealing with like the, the financial and health crisis in the world, uh, there's always like fires to be put out. I think, um, you know, it, 
you can't trade these companies. So it's not like getting in and out of a stock. So once you're in, you're in for a long time and things take, take a long time. You need to have a lot of patience. Um, you need to invest for the long term. Um, you need to manage your relationships with founders very closely um, and need to also understand that, you know, you're not going to bat a hundred percent. You're not going to, um, you're not going to get it right all the time, but trying to uh, be proactive and trying to, you know, find solutions to problems that haven't even really uh, come up yet is really important. So one thing about having the incubator space with our companies is, you know, we get a real close insight into how our companies are, are doing before it even shows in the numbers. Like, you know, a lot of people have monthly updates or quarterly updates that they share with investors or, you know, external investors on how the companies are doing. One thing is, you know, for us, we can see track a progress happening before it even translates into those numbers and those updates. So we can take advantage of that. We can help companies navigate things before they even know it's going to be a problem or an, an advantage to them. And I think that's really, really cool for us. Um, and then when there are problems, I think um, it's really important to gather as much information and not to react um, too quickly. Um, you know, shooting from the hip for, for these types of companies is just not, it's not helpful. Um, and we all, we all do it. Um, but you just need to have patience and try to collect all the data, remove emotion from decision-making, and hopefully that will uh, carry you through. Mm-hmm. And in in that kind of subject or topic of you know, that kind of having that system where you are not irrational and you can make, I'd say, disciplined judgments, it seems like even in, in your personal system, something I was fascinated to learn was that you actually incorporate having a life coach. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. how did that uh, decision come about? Like, I'm a big, I'm a huge fan of, you know, startup coaches like you know like bill campbell the trillion dollar coach and like jerry mm-hmm. colonna of like reboot and i'm a big believer in that as like i've also had like a coach as being an athlete before and but it's it's a topic i find that isn't it's gaining traction but it's still i think it's not as common so i'm curious like how did that decision come about for you to get a coach for your own self yeah i mean so um my coach is a fantastic um, lady named Alicia Gray. Um, she and I used to work together at uh, Street Context. Uh, she was like the chief of staff there. And we just started sort of talking about working. She was working with some startup CEOs already. And I was talking about some of the problems our first time founders were having. And so uh, I realized that a lot of the problems that um, our founders were having were also problems that I was having as a manager of people myself and just dealing with problems um you know drive-by management is something that we all do and shouting out orders and problems to solve quickly without having a process around it so um i knew that uh i was not going to become a better uh investor until i became a better manager myself Mm. and so i wanted to develop those skills and i just didn't think i could do it on my own you know i read bill campbell's book it was fantastic (laughs) but like you know he's one in a billion. I mean, he's his approach to managing those types of CEOs is not something you can just pick up from a book. Yeah. Um, you need to practice it. You need to talk about it. And so Alicia has worked with myself, 
Uh, she's worked with uh, my team. She's worked with our founders and stuff, and she's she's fantastic. And so I, I do believe in it. Um, I think it really helps, and it allows it allows me to become a better person all around, um, not just in my you know professional life, but in my personal life as well. So I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. And is there is there a way that you look to measure the kind of improvement in your performance? Well, we do something called, um, you know, uh, what is it? I always get confused if it's 180 or 360 feedback. I think oh, it's 360. Yeah, yeah. it's a 360. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 360, yeah. So we do 360 feedback surveys on ourselves and with our team, mm. um, at the, you know, beginning and after in the year. And so that's a great way to measure. Um, and I think just having sort of like uh, anecdotal evidence on ways that things are being done now versus the way they were being done before um, has already proven to be beneficial. And I think I can see it already in my team, the way that we communicate, the way that we support each other and, you know, be honest with each other about things that are bothering us um, has already, you know, paid off several dividends. So we, we really enjoy it. Awesome. It's, it's, it's honestly amazing to hear about, you know, people like at least even like the investment community who are actually embracing this kind of mentality and making these kind of incremental improvements. And I'm curious for you, what, what is it that really kind of motivates you now to continue to build out Ripple Ventures and help entrepreneurs? Like what's motivating you to do all this? That's 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 good. I mean, someone, um, you know, asked me like, you know, do you feel that investing in, you know, startups um, is a great way to make a living? And the answer is no, it's not, you know, because <laughs> it takes a long time and there's so much risk to it. So uh, I, I would definitely uh, be lying to you if I said it was, you know, all about trying to make a, a boatload of money. It's really not. I mean, obviously that's somewhat a way to measure the success, but to me, I love helping young entrepreneurs pursue their visions and their dreams and getting to a a destination they probably can't get on their own. You know, I think about how many great entrepreneurs um, had great ideas and they just could never get them off the ground Mm -hmm. because nobody could take the chance to bet on them. And I love, well, I love being the underdog. I love proving people wrong and I love taking risk with somebody whether it's you know an up and down roller coaster and it you know t- takes a couple of years off my life um i'm still happy to have that experience and i think life is all about those experiences and the experience i went through with turnstile i mean i can never ever ever forget that and i mean that's why i called the fun ripple because what i experienced with my first investment in turnstile which was you know a big investment for me, but it was a small investment in the grand scheme of things and how many people's lives have changed. I mean, people are now living in San Francisco and Israel and New York and, you know, all over the place and have built some amazing, amazing relationships um, due to that first check I wrote um, that the ripple effect from that decision I made one day cascaded into so many different people's lives and so um, that experience to me is something I just want to keep on happening. And so I called the fun ripple because of the ripple effect that that decision I made had on, on my life and so many other people's. And so I, I don't want to have to only have to have that once in my life. 
Oh no, that's a that's an awesome story, and I think that's actually a great way to kind of run into our kind of final、uh, leg of the interview, where I'd like to ask some kind of end of interview questions. And one particular question I want to ask is, what is something that you believe that goes against conventional wisdom? It can be in the investing space, it can be related to like careers.、Um, you know, your career itself is very unconventional, and I think the One attraction to the investing world for a lot of people is the ability to be unconventional and challenge conventional wisdom. And so, I'm curious for you, what something that kind of stands out as something that you believe that goes against conventional wisdom? I don't know about conventional wisdom, but there's something about the the, the rule of ten thousand coffees that I I truly believe in.、Hmm. I think the first person you have a coffee with,、um, even though you're trying to get To meet that next person、uh, who's at the ten thousand spot for a coffee is so far away. You have to go through those ten thousand coffees just to get to that person. And so, my advice to my younger self is: don't be、um, put off by the fact that you're not getting what you want from somebody just because they don't seem to be immediately helpful to you. Um, and so, paying it forward and having the patience to go through that process of like networking all the different dots will pay off in the end.、Um, and don't just look for the quick win or the quick gain from something you have in front of you、um, because it just doesn't work that way.、Mm-hmm. And, and I think that a lot of people, you know, will say, "If you can't help me now, you know,、uh, you're no good to me." And I, I don't believe in that.、Mm-hmm. And you noted how that's an advice you would have loved to give to your younger self. And wh- what was the kind of? It might be a single experience, or it could be a stream. But what what were the experiences that made you kind of have that shift in mindset from what that younger self of yourself might have thought about? Well, I think、um, I think it's sort of like what entrepreneurs have in in terms of their everyday mindset is when they have nothing to lose, they have everything to gain, and when you're Trying to be extremely valuable with your time and resources, you end up missing out on a tremendous amount of opportunities. So when I was probably working on Wall Street and finance, I was trying to be so you know、uh, select with my time. And then when I was you know working or when I wasn't really working, I was like, you know what, screw it, I'll take this meeting, I'll take this call. And then all of a sudden, it started leading to all these different conversations and people, and like the handcuffs were taken off. And so. You know, I I met Devin, the CEO of Turnstile, through、uh, a friend of mine that I had only met, you know, several months before that、uh, at a party, and so things just kept sort of snowballing from there.、Mm. And if I had just had a little bit more of an open mind towards meeting people, talking to people early on in my life, I'm always shocked at where it would have taken me. But I'm glad that I, you know, kind of overcame that selectiveness in terms of like. Taking conversations or people or meetings,、um, and just started being more open with it, and it led to so many great conversations and relationships,、um, and that's why I continue to do it today. Awesome! Like、uh, this conversation we're having now. <laughs> and I'm super appreciative that you took my call and、uh, came on this interview to share your fascinating story with myself and my audience. I really appreciate it, Matt. And yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> is there is there is there something you wish that we'd kind of touched upon today that? We didn't get to cover、um, that you'd like to kind of leave my audience with.、Um, you know, I think for for entrepreneurs out there,、um, I think、uh, just make sure you don't let no's stop you from pursuing a lot of your、uh, you know dreams and visions. And I think if you do receive no's,、um, 
you need to poke and prod at why. You should never leave a, a meeting with somebody unless you fully understand their train of thought and why they came to those decisions mm -hmm. because you'll never gain anything out of it. And so when we say no to entrepreneurs, we don't just say no. We say no with an explanation to make them better for the next time they meet somebody like us. And so I just want entrepreneurs to know that uh, no doesn't mean no. It just means no for us, but could be yes for other people. And so the more no's you get, the closer you are to a yes, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and I, I love that. Yeah, no, no doesn't mean never, right? It just means not yep. now. Exactly. Yeah. So I got a lot of no's when raising my first son, and I'm sure I'm going to see a million more no's for the rest <laughs> of my life, but it, it's not going to slow me down. So thank oh. you, uh, thank you so much. Oh yeah, thank thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, sharing your story with me and my audience. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Thank my you. pleasure. Take care. All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. It hopefully it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different, maybe challenging yourself, being courageous, who knows. But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content. But at the same time, also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee. That's just how I put it. And you can buy me a coffee a month, coffee a week, or coffee every day of the year. And think about it as the way that if you wanted to chat with me, you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee. Or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat, you might buy them a coffee. So I'm just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you. So you can just pay me in coffees. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, everything will still be free. It's just It would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that I can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this is, isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further. So your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute. And so yeah, just check out the website, go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder. All right, thank you.